0: Good afternoon, Parshas Tetzava. Okay, I have a beautiful series of comments from first to share. Parshas Tetzava has two major components to it. The first one really is technically a minor component, but it, we begin the Parsha with it, and that is the lighting of the menorah. Let's just take a step back and set the context of what we're doing. Last week's Parsha, Parshas Truma, began the construction of the Mishkan. Hashem speaks to Moshe. This is still all between Hashem and Moshe, in which Hashem tells Moshe, you are going to tell the people that they're going to donate the materials that we need for the building of the Mishkan, the gold, the silver, the copper, the spices, the incense, the oil, uh, various wools and covers and threads and linen and wool, and we're going to build the Mishkan. And last week's parsha, Hashem went through all of the vessels of the actual Mishkan itself, the tabernacle walls, the planks, the vessels that filled the Mishkan, the Aron, the Shulchan, the Mizbeach, all of that. In this week's Parsha, Hashem is going to continue. This is only speaking to Moshe again. All of the construction of the big day kahuna, the clothing that the Kohanim are going to wear. We're going to have an ent- almost the entire Parsha is going to describe the various elements. There were two different sets of clothing. One for the Kohen Hediot, the regular Kohen wore four special begadim, the Kohen Gadol wore the high priest wore eight special begadim, and the entire parsha almost is a discussion again, Hashem telling Moshe how we are going to make them, out of what are we going to make them, and how is that process going to work. In parshas Vayakil Pekude, which we're going to read in two and in three weeks, then Moshe conveys this to the people and they do it. So these two parshes that we're reading now is Hashem speaking to Moshe. Then Moshe is going to convey the message to the people and then the people are going to go out and actually... Do it. They're going to make the, the Mishkan, the vessels of the Mishkan, and the clothing of the Kohen Gadol. So, our Parsha Tetzaveh, is really about the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, Hashem speaking to Moshe, but there's a 2 pusuk introduction to the constructing of the clothing for the Kohen, and that is Hashem telling Moshe, You're also going to tell the Kohanim they need to light the menorah. So what I'd like to do this afternoon, let's learn those first two psukim uh, with a little of uh, Rashi's comments and then a number of Rav Hirsch's comments on this idea of lighting the menorah. And then we'll do Rav Hirsch's introduction to the constructing of the clothing for the Kohen. We're not going to go through pasuk by pasuk. We'll just, I'll I'll share with you his comments on an introductory comment to the idea of the clothing for the Kohen. Okay, but let's start from the top. It's in front of you on your screens. It's only two psukim. This first part about the lighting of the menorah it goes as follows. And now you, Moshe, will command B'nei Yisrael. They will take, they will give, really, um, for you a pure oil, um lama that has been crushed for this purpose of the lighting, tamid. in order to uh, cause there to be a ne'er tamid, a perpetual ne'er that should be lit, tamid always. So in order to be able to cause to light a ne'er tamid, you'll tell and command the Jewish people, they need to bring for you this oil, and from this oil, we're going to have this, uh, this ne'er tamid. One more, pasuk ba'oil mo'ed, where is... The menorah going to be situated in which we're going to have this Ner Tamid, this perpetual burning candle. Michutzla Parochas. It's going to be set up outside of the curtain, Asher Al-Ha'idus, which is over the. Uh, the arun or the Edus, the testimony, meaning to say in the Mishkan there were two sections. In the deeper section in the Mishkan was where we kept the Aaron. We read about the Arun last week, the wooden box, which had a golden box inside and a golden box outside, so those three boxes, one inside of another. Inside was kept the Luchos, and on top of it was the cover with the Chruvim, the angel-like beings with their wings over the Aaron. That was kept in a partitioned-off area. There's a Parochas, Parochas was like literally a current that was made, it was sewn together, woven together had a wool and linen, and behind it was the Aron. Nobody went in that except for the Kohen Gadol, which was similar to the Kodesh HaKadosh, and when the permanent base Hamikdosh would be built in Yerushalayim, we also had a similar partitioned-off area of the Holy of Holies, which housed the Aron, and nobody was allowed to go in it. Outside of that area, on the other side of the partition, was where the menorah was going to be, and that's what our Pasek says, and that's where you're going to light this perpetual light. But O'il Moed, in the area of the regular area of the Mishkan, known as the Owel Moed, outside of the curtain, which is where the Edus, the testimony, referring to the Torah itself, which is Hashem's testimony to us, Ya Arochoso Hash and his children will kindle this light, May Erev Ad Boker from evening till morning, Hashem Always, May Yisrael for the Jewish people, that they're taking it from the Jewish people. Interesting to note, the word menorah does not actually appear in either one of these two psukim, just that there's a commandment to the Jewish people to give the shemen. In other words, if you look at it at the first pasuk, pasuk chaf, it's a, it's a command to the Jews to bring the oil with which Aharon and his sons will light a perpetual light, in the oil moed, outside of the area where the aron itself was kept, it says referred. Well, first let's uncover a number of comments from Rashi. Rashi points out from the language of Shemin zayis zach that it says pure oil. They would squeeze out of the out of the olive a single drop of oil, and only that first drop, and only exclusively that first drop, was fit for lighting the menorah. Anything beyond that first drop, the second drop, could be used for certain menachos and oil offerings and flower offerings. But the menorah can only have that first pure drop of oil, one from each uh, olive. Rashi also points out on the language of le- ha- alos ner tamid. How would we translate the word tamid, that it should be a perpetual lighting, always? The word tamid generally means always. Rashi points out in this context, the word always actually means as the very next passage which we read a moment ago says may erev ad boke, from evening till morning meaning it didn't actually burn straight through uh 24 hours a day all through the night it didn't it was lit at night and they only put in enough oil to last through the night and then during the day it wasn't necessarily lit and then they would light it again the next night and that was called tamid that it was always, it was perpetual. Not because it was 24 hours a day, but because it was every single night you had it there. Rashi notes in last week's Power Show, we had another word, tamid. Always, or perpetually, when it came to the Lechem Hapanim, the showbread, which was in the Mishkan, there was a table, and the table had shelves for 12 loaves of bread. The bread would be placed there every Shabbos, and then removed the following Shabbos, and eaten by the Kohanim, so that every week the Kohanim would eat a week-old bread, because it was baked one week and put on the shelves, and then... When they put them on the shelves, they took out the previous week's bread, and that was what they ate, so that the fresh bread sat on the shelf the whole week in on the shulchan in the, in the Mishkan, and then the Kohanim would remove. So the, the Mishnah debates how exactly they would put in the new bread and take out the old bread. The Chachamim hold that when they would put in the new bread, you would put it in by pushing out the old bread, meaning the new loaf would be put on the shelf and would push out the old bread so that there would never be a moment without bread on the shelf. Since it says, the bread should be before me always. So always means always. You can't ever have a moment without and therefore you literally would, the Kohen would stand on one side of the shelf, and push the bread so that the other one would come out and the new one would be on it. One of the miracles of the Beislam English is that the bread was always fresh, even though when the Kohanim ate it, it had been baked a week prior, A week prior, but it was still as fresh as when, it was, uh, as when it was baked. The Gemara has another opinion of Rebiosi, who says, no, the fact that the bread has to be there always just means it can never go a night without having bread. But it's okay, you could take one out, put the next one in. It doesn't have to be literally always. It's fine, just that it is, never goes a night without. And so Rashi comments that sometimes you see the word tamid here when it comes to the lighting of the menorah. Tamid always means every night. It doesn't literally always have to be lit. Just every night it's lit. And when it comes to the bread, we have from week to week, you have to put the new bread on. But you can never also go a full night without anything. And according to one opinion, you can never go at all without just parenthetically, this is just an interesting discussion is what does it mean always? If we use the word always, you know, first of all, colloquially, we just say like, you know, you're, you're always late. You always say things like that. So it doesn't mean literally you always say that. It just means regularly. So in the same way, we, we want to always be involved in learning. We always want to be involved in growth. What does it mean to Always. I, I always want to be keeping Torah mitzvahs. So there's an idea. I'm perpetually doing it. Even if it doesn't mean literally every moment, I'm always involved so that even if, for example, we only make a bracha on learning in the, in the morning when we, when we begin to dab and we make a bracha on learning Torah, and then the rest of our day is covered by that. We're always involved in some way. We're connected to the Torah, even if I'm not literally with a book in front of me. I'm not listening to a shir right now. But I'm always involved in this idea of something being always, when it's not literally always, appears already here in, in this puzzle. Okay, but moving on to the next idea. Rashi says, L'ha'alos. The idea is that you need to bring up this, this light. Rashi says the obligation is when the Kohen lights the menorah, he puts the flame that he's using to light the, onto the new wick. And he has to leave it there until the new wick is now burning on its own. So you put the the candle, the flame that you have onto the new flame, and then that new flame, you leave the flame from your existing wick onto the old the new wick until Hashalheves Olema Atzmo, until the flame goes up on its own. We'll get back to that uh, comment in a moment. Okay, let's talk about some of those that Rashi gives us some of the descriptions here of, of what is taking place. Refersh points out right away that the oil that the Jewish people are being commanded here to bring was already part of the list that we had in last week's Parsha. When Moshe is first told, here are the things the Jews need to donate. Kesseh Zov, Kessefunekhoshis, it's gold, it's silver, it's copper. Included in that list was V'shemen Lama'or, an oil for lighting purposes. So that even when the list was being sent out and disseminated for materials that we would need for the construction of the Mishkan, one of the things on the list that was needed for the construction was actually more needed for the functioning of the Mishkan. The oil was not needed to build the Mishkan like all the other materials. Every other material listed was needed actually for the construction. But the oil that we were told about already last week, is as we're described here, is needed for the functioning of the Mishkan, to light this menorah. And that, he says, is a very significant idea that the illumination and the clarity of the mind that's represented in the lighting of this menorah, that we should be clear in our purpose and our goals, is actually the purpose of the entire entity of this building of this Mishkan, that we should have that that's what the mishkan is there for and what it uh, represents furthermore the fact that we are told here about lighting the menorah before we're even told about the construction of the clothing which is going to be the bulk of the parsha there's only two verses in the beginning of the parsha every other aspect of our parsha is about the uh, priestly garments also tells us that uh, I'm reading his words over here I just want you to know that, I that is a duty yeah, let me just uh, Mute everybody. I'm sorry. Hold on one second. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm sorry. There we go. Sorry about that, everyone. It says Rav that the this idea of the lighting is going to take precedence over all the other duties. This clearness of mental vision, which is to be derived of the Torah, is the mother, the purpose, the goal. And we're told, even before I tell you what the Kohanim need to wear to do so, the goal is this idea of having a lit menorah, of having that candle lit, that illuminating light is of primary significance. Now, where does this come from? Where does the oil come from? So the Torah makes it very clear. Atot tetzaves b'nei Yisrael, command the Jewish people to bring it. Not only does the, the beginning Pusik that's on the top of your screen have the phrase, instruct the Jewish people to bring it, the very last phrase of this two Pusik series says, Ace b'nei Yisrael. All of this is to be done from the Jewish people. And that is a, a significant element that the oil of the menorah has to come from the Jewish people. Why is that a significant uh, comment, that even though it's the Kohanim, who are primarily involved in lighting it, but the oil has to come from the Jewish people? That is to teach, says the first, that the spiritual education, which is what the menorah represents, that clarity of mind, is the responsibility of the general community. This is not something that's the prerogative of the priestly caste. You are you're, you're in charge. Or you have to worry about education. I don't have to deal with that. I'm not a Kohen. No, 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 no. You, the Jewish people, must supply the oil that the Kohen is simply going to light. The oil of this nation is to be offered for the light of the Torah. The menorah is the tree of the national spirit, he writes. Not that of the priests. It's true. The sanctity of the priest, the sanctity of the Mishkan, that's where the menorah is. You, the Jew, must provide that oil. And it is highly characteristic. He points out an amazing halacha. Is the Kohen the only person who is allowed to light the menorah? The actual answer to that is no, it's not true. A regular Jew is also allowed to light the menorah. The Kohen is the only one who's allowed to clear out the wicks, to clear out the previous day, to set up today's wick. But the actual lighting, the actual lighting if necessary, the Gemara says very clearly, would be allowed to be done by a regular Jew. The Gemara says you have to work out where can he stand. The menorah is in a place that a regular Jew is not necessarily allowed to go. But the halacha would be technically allowed to. Because what's represented, the Kohen is in charge of setting up the menorah clearing out from yesterday to be ready to go and lighting the Jews' oil to provide the light. But no Jew can ever abscond. It's not my problem. Someone else's problem to educate me, to educate my children. Everyone has to feel that it is their direct responsibility. The language of Vayikchu Eilecha first points out, even when you use it, even when the Kohen uses it, it remains there. You are only the gizbar for it. You, the Kohen, are in charge of it, but making sure it becomes illuminated for everyone. And that's the idea, he concludes. As Rashi said, you have to light it. The Kohen lights it. And how long does he keep the flame there? Until the new wick is on on fire itself. That idea, that the new flame burns on the wick by itself, he says, is the definition of the Kohen's job here. It is the precise description of the demand to keep the kindling flame against the wick until the latter burns by itself. This, he says, listen to this, you're not even going to believe this. The work of a teacher, the work of a Rebbe, a Torah teacher, is to make himself superfluous, says Rav Hirsch. The entire purpose is to light the next wick, until that wick burns on its own, and the source of fire that's lighting it, you can take it away and it will have no impact on the new burning fire because it is already a light on its own. The purpose of a Rebbe is not to keep the laity, so to speak, in lasting dependence on the teacher or the priest. You need the teacher. He can't go anywhere. No, 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 no. It's the exact opposite. A successful teacher produces a fire that burns on its own within the student that the student no longer needs the teacher. At the same time, says Refersh, how long does the teacher keep that flame there to the new wick until the wick is alight? That is an admonition to enduring patience of the teacher. Your job as a teacher says the first is you keep the flame as long as it's necessary. It's not lighting. I need to go. No, you stay and you inspire that student. You inspire, inspire that community until it's burning. Once it's burning, then you're allowed to pull away and it will burn on its own. That is a successful mission of a teacher, of a Rebbe, to be able to produce that fire. How long does that take? However long it takes, that's your job. Make it burn. Keep your flame there until it's a light on its own. And then that's the goal. So you have to take the oil from the Jew because the Jew has to feel invested, has to feel responsible for the process. It's your oil that needs to light. But I don't know how to light it. That's the Cohen's job. Again, the main it was his main job to light the menorah, even though it could be done by a regular Jew. The Kohen then lights it, however long it takes to take his flame, representing the kahuna, against your wick with your oil, however long it takes, until it burns on its own, and then the next generation of Jew is a flame lit, inspired, illuminated by the light of the candle. One last comment or first on these first two psukim. Where will this lighting take place? So again, in the second possibility we read, in Pesach Aleph, it's Ba'o'el Moed, in the Oel Moed, which is the main area, mi'chutz la'paroches, outside of the screen. What was on the other side of the screen? The Aron with the Luchos, that's the pristine purity of Torah. Mi'chutz, on the outside of the screen, is where you'll light the menorah. Cesar first, why does the Torah use that language, that you're standing on the outside of the Torah? Cesar first. Because oh, this is such a beautiful comment. So the human mind, turning towards the Torah and receiving enlightenment from it, one has to remain conscious of something. And that's where do we get our, our 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 insights from? Where do we get our wisdom from? It all comes from the Torah. So we turn always to the Torah to receive that light. But there needs to be one thing that we always need to be reminded of: we are michutz, we are on the outside of that purity of Torah. The Torah is inside the screen and we can never go there. On the outside, that's where we are. What does he mean by that, says Rav Listen to this one line. I want to read it. This is how it's, again, he wrote it in German. The Torah is something that has been given to us, not produced by us. The Torah is its pristine, pure gift that Hashem gave us to us, not something that was produced by us. Meaning, We, the human mind, has to draw and increase our knowledge and enlightenment out of the Torah, but never to take our own light into the Torah to alter or reform it, to make the Torah what we want it to say. No, 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 no. The Torah is God's gift to us. We have to get and nourish ourselves from it. And always be careful never to insert the way we want it to read, the way we think it should be, the way our generation feels it should... It should. Te- no, 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 that's not how it works. You are always michutz la parochas, on the outside. The human mind, continues to refresh, always has to keep itself conscious of the parochas, that divider, the chruvim, those angel-like beings which divide off and protect the Torah. Should the need arise to prevent the human tendency which misjudges its true position. We think of ourselves as so great, so enlightened. We are the most technologically advanced of all generations. Every generation, I'm sure, felt that way. We get it. What does does that screen and the chruvim on top of the auron protect from? That we could, the mind... Misjudging its own value could turn against the inviolability of the Torah, and instead of sitting as a disciple at its feet, dare to assume an arrogant mastery over it. And that's why the Torah always uses this phrase. He says a number of times, "Your Michuts. There's a screen, and the purity of the Sefer Torah—not just the Sefer, the actual luchos—are in the Aron sealed off, so to speak, as a constant reminder. It's our job to nourish ourselves from it, never to impose our will, our desires. L- listen, we, we live, every generation has that, in which times change. Times change, values change in the world around us. And things which were accepted in the world 60 years ago are not accepted in the world now. Behaviors which were not accepted 60, even 60 years ago, forget about 160 years ago, 205, are accepted now. And the elements of the Torah is unchanging despite the desire to therefore make the Torah fit into every generation's values, every generation's values change. Every 40, 50 years, there's a whole new set of values that exist in the world. We are all michutz la parochas. The Torah is pristine and pure, a gift from Hashem Himself, and we must nourish ourselves from it, not impose our will upon it. Those are some of Hersch's opening comments on this idea of the lighting of the menorah, which is instructed to the Kohanim here. Let's turn to his description. The rest of the parsha is all about the Kohanim. Let's just read a few psukim. Um, so now, Hashem says to Moshe, bring forward your brother Aharon, his children, mitoch b'nei from amongst the Jewish people, that they will serve me as Kohanim. It's going to be Aharon and his sons Nadav and Avihu, Elazar and Itamar, those four sons of Aharon. And you make begodim clothing for Aharon, that will be kavod, that will be for honor and tiferes and for glory or honor, adornment, that is going to be. And then the rest of the Parsha goes on describing all of the various garments. A few comments the Rav makes as an introduction to this idea. Number one, if an entire Parsha is dedicated to this and then a second Parsha in terms of Pakude when it's actually being made, there must be some great, understanding, meaning, symbolism of these clothing, the set of clothing that is made, which we see that if a Kohen were dare to serve in the Beis Hamikdash without these special series of garments, he's considered like a czar. he's like a foreigner, in the same way that a regular Jew, non-Kohen, if he would walk into the Beis Hamikdash and try to serve, he would be chay of misa bidei a heavenly death sentence. How dare you? A Kohen without his clothing is like a non-Kohen. So much so is the significance of the the clothing that he wears, he cannot serve without it. Some of the clues as to its significance, says the first, comes from the exact same place we just started with the oil. Who produced the oil? Who presented the oil, I should say, to the Kohen? It has to come from the people. So too the clothing must be Michel Tsibor. It must be supplied and owned by the nation is our first clue as to the significance of the clothing. A Cohen may not produce his own. It has to be. It's the people's clothing. And that is, says Rav Hirsch, as a, to bring home the idea that when the Kohen stands before Hashem in the Beis HaMikdash and serves, he is not serving as an individual. He does not represent himself. He is simply the embodiment, the representative of the entire nation. Without these clothing, the priest would stand merrily as an individual, he writes. And what he does then would appear to be purely his own idea of what should be done. If he were to stand there as an individual, wearing his own clothing, what he thought was cool or fashionable or comfortable, he would be standing before Hashem as an individual, and the service that he would do would have the appearance of what he thinks would be cool or fashionable or or would work to serve and, and please Hashem. He must wear public garments that are already determined what they would be, which is the basic idea of what the Mikdash is. The Mishkan is the place that the Kohen will represent all of the people. And he adds, if the Kohen were to stand there as an individual, not only would it give the appearance of this is what I think makes sense, this is how I think you should serve Hashem. Not only that, but when he would stand there as an individual, then the particular functioning priest that stands there would be standing there in all of his nakedness, meaning not physical nakedness, his spiritual nakedness, with all of his weakness and faults, that even the best of humans are all liable. That Cohen would stand there and he would be who he is, like all of us, with their mistakes, their sins, their shortcomings, their faults. And that ideal is too likely to be far below the model which is really what the Torah demands of us as trying to achieve. And therefore, he introduces a brilliant idea here the clothing that he's instructed to wear. The priest, therefore, does not appear in the character which he actually is, but with which he should attempt to be. Meaning, if he would stand there in his own clothing, so he stands, this is who he is. And he'd stand there with all of his faults and all of his shortcomings and all of his personality. Everything that's his, which is, might not be the the ideal. But when he puts on the clothing that's demanded of him, he no longer stands as a representative of who he actually is, but who he strives to be. This, this idea... These, and I just, in in our first language, these priestly garments he expresses to himself and to others, not his real imperfection, but the demands of what he actually wants to be. This idea comes from the very idea of clothing. Where is the first time we find clothing in the Torah? So it first takes us all the way back to Parsha's Bresh. It's the very first Parsha in the Torah. We're introduced to Adam and to Chava. They are placed in Gan Eden and they are Arumim. They are naked. They have no need for clothing. And after they eat of the forbidden fruit, the Torah says they understood and realized that they were naked. What's the first thing that they do? They fashion for themselves some type of makeshift clothing from leaves of trees that are around them. Hashem then comes and speaks to them and meets out all the different punishments to the snake and to Chava and to Adam, which of course concludes with banishment from Gan Eden. And then the Torah tells us, as Hashem banishes them and sends them out, or he makes for them clothing. He takes away the makeshift leaves that they had done from, put for themselves together out of their embarrassment and their shame. And he gives them an honorable set of clothing. The gift that Hashem gives to Adam and Chava is a set of clothing. Says of her, Why is that so significant? That the Torah tells us as he sends them out into the world, in which there are no other people, by the way, at this point, they're given clothing. Clothing represents of this very significant origin in the history of man's moral upbringing, says Rav Hirsch. It was given as an eternal reminder of our moral calling of man, of our failing of our moral calling, of our failing which caused exile, and as we're sent out, Hashem gives us clothing, as He dismisses us from paradise into the educational world of work. Now it's la'avda ul shamrah. Now we gotta work the land. Now we gotta produce. Now there's gonna be self sacrifice and all of the attendant dangers of animal erring, he writes in his poetic language. As we go out of Gan Eden, we have the tremendous potential to err on the side of our animal being. As we've discussed many times, we're comprised of our body and of our soul. Our soul yearns heavenward, wants to be good and pure and true. And our body, our goof, wants to pull us down, wants to be like, like the animals that we share this world with. And it's a constant struggle of which part of us will, will dominate. And the world we are we were sent into from Gan Eden is the world filled with the danger of animal erring, in which we could be filled with lust and with desire and with uh, all of our own um, selfish needs. And Hashem gave us a gift to combat that sense of us in the form of clothing. None of our animal cousins, so to speak, wear clothing. None of our the animals with which these other physical beings in which we share this world, none of them wear clothing. But we have a higher calling. We have to rise above that element, which is part of our being. But we have to rise above that and serve our neshama much more than our body. And the gift that Hashem gave us was the gift of clothing that says, Be human. Be always on the rise. Be always in growth mode. Clothing is itself, says the first, a reminder of man's calling. And it is the first and most striking appearance, which characterizing a being as human. We take this for granted. You see, a, a, you see a creature; they're wearing clothing. It's another person. We know, if we don't even think about it. It's so obvious. And you see a being with that as an animal. The animal doesn't have clothing. People do. It's a reminder to our calling we have a different calling than every other creature that exists in this world. We have a creature, we have an neshama that exalts us above every other creature, that yearns heavenward, that yearns for spiritual growth, and our clothing reminds us we had once failed. We didn't need this clothing. Adam and Chava were without it in Gan Eden, but they couldn't remain in that state. But Hashem gifted us the clothing on the way out to remember what it is. That's the clothing, reverse says, is the sign the Kohen puts on that clothing. And it's no longer just who he is, where he is now. It's a reminder of what he could be, that pure, pristine clothing of the Kohen, unchanging through the generations, unchanging through styles, fads. The pants are never, they're they're tight, they're wide, the ties. No, 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 no. We don't care about the the, the changing fashion from year to year. The Cohen's garment was pure and pristine. It remained exactly the same and no matter what generation you showed up in the Mikdosh, that it looked exactly the same. The Cohen's clothing represented the model of what we yearn and strive to be, and therefore there has to be that uniform because the Cohen is not representing himself. He's not representing himself as an individual. He's not standing before all of his own sins and faults. He's representing what mankind could be when he represents us in serving Hashem. And therefore he has a specific uniform of clothing that every Kohen would wear, reflective of the goal and the mission of what it is that we want. Rav Hirsch goes on to explain how each one of the garments that the Torah describes is reflective of this mission. But that's the idea in his introduction of what the clothing represents and why it is so important that the Cohen specifically uh, wears that that when we see clothing clothing, it serves as a personality or a spiritual cloak, which can be recognized by those around us. The idea is many, many commentators speak about the, the value of what clothing does. It, it transmits, it promotes an idea about us. What we want people to think about us is always communicated in the clothing that we wear. It has a great significance and importance in the type of clothing. And, and we sometimes, for good and for bad, we see somebody in a certain set of clothing and we right away judge them up of, sometimes correctly, what it is that they want us to see from them, and sometimes it's misleading. That's what clothing, and the perm, of course, idea of getting dressed up in a costume reminds us how misleading clothing can be, but we often use it purposely to transmit what it is that we want. We want people to see us in a certain way and think of us in a certain way. We want the doctor who comes in, uh, a surgeon, to look a certain way in his, in his scrubs. We want a lawyer, for paying $500 an hour, we want the lawyer to look like a $500 an hour lawyer. He, he has to, otherwise it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't look right but clothing has that idea to transmit certain messages, as, as misleading as it sometimes can be. But again, the Kohen has to have that, and that's why there's that special unit of clothing which he has, the Chavod or the Tiferes, as it should be always as an honor and a glory to the Kohen, representing all of us, because it's really the Jews' clothing that he clothes the Kohen with, not his own. All right, a number of thoughts from first on Parshas Titzav again next week and for the week after, the next two weeks. We will not have a class on Wednesday, but look forward to getting back again uh, shortly thereafter. Have an awesome day, and we'll speak soon.